Our sermon and Bible reading passage is from Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 35. Uh, If you don't have a paper Bible in front of you and uh, you'd like one, which is strongly recommended, the uh, lovely Debbie Webster is already handing them out. Feel free to stick up your hand uh, and grab one. Uh, If you're... uh, not super familiar with the Bible, uh, in this one here, the book of Mark is actually pretty close to the back. It's sort of in the New Testament, after Matthew, uh, which is a big one. Uh, if it helps, this, uh, this is one of the church Bibles, that's on page 1005. I um, sadly am having an old person moment. This is my Bible and it's getting, like I can't read the small print so much anymore. Time for a new Bible. Uh, By way of context, uh, in uh, last week's passage, Jesus uh, has been going on the front foot with the massive crowds that have come to him, and he's sort of finished teaching in parables in a way that kind of divides the crowd. And uh, a lot of the teaching in Mark's Gospel is sort of on one side of the Sea of Galilee on the other. So he's just finished a big body of teaching, and now he's going to cross the Sea of Galilee, and we see what happens in this next instalment. Mark chapter 4, verse 35 through to 43. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was, in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, "'Teacher, don't you care if we drown?' He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, 
They saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying Please come and put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realised that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they had said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ben. Please keep uh, your Bibles open at uh, that passage. And uh, you'll find an outline of um, 
of uh, what I'll be saying on the back of the notice sheet, and there's some room there if you want to take notes. Um, I find that can help me to, uh, to, to concentrate and to, uh, to pay attention, so I encourage you to, to do that. Let's pray as we come to consider this part of God's Word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your Word. We thank you for this time to reflect upon it and to, to grow in our understanding. We ask that you would help us to do that, that we would learn more of the Lord Jesus and how you would call us to respond to him. We ask in his name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever wondered uh, why it is that we are seemingly so fascinated with bad news. News reports of, of all sorts in whatever form that they come to us so often are about they're bad news. They're full of bad news. I mean, there might be the occasional kind of, you know, fluffy animal good news story at the end of the news bulletin, or maybe the, 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 the good news sports story, depending on what Australia's been up to. Um, but usually most of the news is bad news. It's stories of violence and crime and disaster and war and injustice and suffering. And, and we might wonder, well, why is that the case? Now, you might have uh, theories about the um, psychology of consumer demand for bad news. You know, what is it about us that makes us just want more and more bad news? I don't know. But I think at the very least, one of the reasons the news is often bad is because things in this world are often bad. And it's not just out there in the land of news reports. Actually, there's things in our world that are bad. We live and we face those things ourselves. Maybe we're sheltered from much of it, but we face suffering, conflict, Sickness, tragedy, disaster, injustice. We live in the same broken world that, gets, that fills our news feeds. Now one response when uh, people face or experience these things is to cry out, Why, uh, where is God? Where is God in amongst all this? Why is he letting this happen? I don't know if you've ever found yourself thinking that, wondering that. In this, this past week or so, I've had conversations with people where that's where their mind goes, why is God allowing this bad thing to happen? Uh, for some, that's a real question of, um, of, that's born out of real angst and grief. Where is God? For others, it, it can be a, a, a more of a, um, a philosophical question that's raised for them. That the, you know, the reality of evil in this world poses a question for them about the existence of God which they put up as an obstacle to belief in God. It's an age-old dilemma. Um, it goes like this. If, if God is all good and God is all powerful, then why does evil exist? In fact, the existence of evil, according to this argument, shows that either God is not all powerful, he's unable to prevent evil, or he's not all good. He doesn't want to prevent evil. So how can the all-powerful, all-God allow evil to exist? That's the, uh, the great philosophical dilemma of the problem of evil. And those amongst you who are more philosophically bent, you can um, debate that over supper uh, later on. But the thing is that Jesus wasn't so much interested in philosophical arguments. He didn't sit back in his ivory tower in heaven hypothesizing about the existence of evil and the threat that it may or may not pose to God's existence or his goodness or his power. No, God, uh, Jesus stepped into this world, into this broken, decaying world. He walked amongst it and he faced it and he confronted it. And this is what we see in tonight's passage before us in the situations that Jesus meets as he confronts this 
world of decay. See there at the end of uh, chapter 4, Jesus faced firstly a, a hostile environment. There's this wild storm at sea that threatened the life of, of his life, the life of the, the disciples. There they are in a small boat on the Sea of Galilee. And it says in verse 37, verse 37, a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. Now, this was a serious situation. This, uh, this could well have been the, the end for these men. I mean, you can, you can sort of imagine the, the Galilean news headline, 12 drown at sea while leader sleeps. <laughs> Jesus comes into this world and he meets a hostile environment. Next, we see he meets hostile powers. Next chapter, chapter 5, he's confronted by this man uh, with an evil spirit. Now, Jesus has encountered other evil spirits, but this, this is taking it to a new level. This man was, was uncontrollable evil. So we read there verse 3. Look there with me, verse 3. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. I think Mark is making an allusion back to chapter 3, verse 27, to the one who is strong enough to subdue the strong man of Satan. Jesus meets and he confronts this hostile power, the powers of evil in this world. Thirdly, he meets a world of disease. This, this woman who's been subject to bleeding for 12 years, uh, that's long-term suffering. It says she'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, verse 26. Costly doctors. She's spent all of her money. She's impoverished. And instead of making her better, it, she actually got worse. Here is a woman who has suffered much. Not just the, the physical illness, not just the, the bungled medical treatment, not just the financial destitution, but on top of all that, as, as a Jew, under the Old Testament law, she would have been regarded as ceremonially unclean because of her condition. She would have been unable to participate in life at the temple. She would have been an outcast. And not only was she regarded as unclean, but anyone who touched her would be regarded as unclean. Jesus meets this woman who has suffered much. He meets this world of disease. And he meets death, the greatest enemy of all. Jairus, one of his, uh, uh, he, one of his daughters is, is dying. He, Jairus is a synagogue ruler. He has a 12-year-old daughter who's dying. This is tragic. Uh, one of my children many years ago was quite sick. It took a number of months to diagnose what was, what was actually wrong. I was never really fearing for their life. Um, they received uh, good medical treatment, though it took a while to, to work it out. But that experience gave me just a faintest glimpse of the horror of seeing your child fading before your eyes and being unable to do anything about it. How great would the grief have been for Jairus, for his family to be faced with the death of this little girl? Jesus meets this world of death. In each of these situations that Jesus meets, the thing that's striking is the horror of it. They're all horrible situations. 
They, they threaten life, they bring death. And they all involve fear. Notice that it's a theme that sort of runs through it. So in 4 verse 38, the disciples, they're, they're in the boat. These men, are, many of them experienced sailors. They're, they're fishermen. They know what they're doing, but they're fearing that they're going to die. They say to Jesus, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Death was a, was a real possibility, if not a likelihood for them. They were afraid. Uh, Jairus, the father of this girl, receives the news that his, his daughter is dead. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Just believe. I mean, the situation would have given him a lot to fear. But it's not only the horror and the fear. These situations have a huge social impact. This, this woman, this social outcast, deprived of human touch. This man who lived among the tombs, unable to function in society, is a threat to society, they had, such that they had to chain him up. There's the obvious social impact for Jairus and his family as they face the death of his daughter. These are horrible, fearful situations with a huge social impact. But furthermore, they all involve uncleanness. Uh, under the Old Testament law, certain things uh, would, would render a person as being regarded as ceremonially unclean. Uh, they, and, and so if, they, if, they were, if you're unclean, you weren't allowed to approach God's temple, you weren't allowed to participate in religious life. Now, it wasn't that, that those things were necessarily in and of themselves immoral. Uh, rather, it was this whole system of life that taught that, that God is holy and we in our sin are unholy. And our unholiness matters to God. It's a, it's a problem between us and God. And we see a lot of uncleanness, as I said in this chapter, this, this woman with the, with the bleeding, any sort of discharge would, uh, would mean that a person was regarded as ceremonially unclean, according to Leviticus 15. Jesus touching a dead girl, Numbers 5 verse 2 says, if, you touch, if someone touches a dead body, they, that makes them ceremonially unclean for seven days. Now there's this, this demon-possessed man with an impure spirit or unclean spirit. He was living in a, a Gentile area. Gentiles, non-Jews, were by definition unclean. He lived among the dead, an unclean place to be. And there was this large herd of pigs, animals that were regarded as unclean. This is the world that Jesus steps into, a world of horror, of fear, social destitution, of spiritual uncleanness. And really, this is... This is today's world. This is the world that, that we live in, right? I mean, our world is, is plagued by, by horror, by fear, by war, by conflict, injustice, disaster. Satan is at work deceiving people, leading them away from God. We face disease, we face sickness, cancer. And over us all hangs the, the shadow of death. This is our broken, decaying world. Now, this may not be the happy, upbeat story that we like to hear. But friends, this is the reality of the world in which we live. And we need to face that. But we need to realise it's, it's not how God created the world to be. Right back at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 2, the, the, the picture is presented there of this idyllic picture of life, of blessing in the Garden of Eden, with, with God and humanity and the creation living in harmony. But it's a picture that was shattered by the rebellion of humanity in the next chapter, Genesis 3, and rebellion against God has been the state of our world ever since. 
Our world is now subject to, to death, disease and the devil. That is, we live outside of Eden. And we need to understand that so that we can understand what an incredible thing it is that Jesus has done. As wonderfully Jesus, the Son of God, has come into this world outside of Eden. And he's come showing his powerful control. Control over this world. Firstly, control over nature. See there, verse, uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 39. It says, He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. I mean, that's power. That, that's control, right? Have you ever tried that, been out in a storm? I mean, just try it. Last Monday night, we had a massive storm come through about four o'clock in the morning. I was, I was tempted to get up and go out in the backyard and say, quiet, be still, and see what had happened. And, um, it would have been quite funny if I'd done it and videoed it and showed it to you. But anyway, the point is, we can't do that, right? We don't have that sort of control, but Jesus has control over nature. That's incredible. And he has control over evil. You know, when he meets that man with the, the legion of, of spirits, there's no question of, of who's in charge. It's not kind of like, oh, this is a, a, a toss-up. Who's going to win this? Jesus is clearly in complete control. Uh, he has con- complete control over disease. He's able to heal this woman with the, the, the touch of his cloak. And he even has control over the greatest enemy of all, over death. He takes the hand of Jairus' dead daughter and says, little girl, get up. And she's raised to life. Jesus is in complete control. And secondly, Jesus cares. He's not just all-powerful, he is all-powerful, but he's also all-good. The disciples, uh, they ask an important question of Jesus. They're in uh, 4 verse 38. The boat's nearly swamped, they're facing death. They say... Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Uh, more literally, it's don't you care that we are perishing, that we're, we're dying? It's a big question. I think Mark's deliberately put it there. This is one of the two things the disciples say in this little episode. As Jesus steps into the world, this world of hostility, of disease, of death, does he care? Does he care for those who are living under the shadow of death? Well, the answer comes as a resounding, yes. Yes, he cares. He's, he's able to save people and he does save people. He delivers them from the shadow of death. He does care and he shows that. And yet it's a hidden display, isn't it? It's not all see this. I mean, even the disciples, they're, they're not sure. In, in, in 4 verse 41, as, they are, as they're uh, responding to this, faced with Jesus' raw power in calming the storm, it says there, they were terrified and asked to each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They're still trying to work out who Jesus is. Uh, the neighbours of the demon-possessed man, when they, they meet Jesus, skip over to uh, 4 verse 15, it says, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who'd been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. They don't see who Jesus is. And they just want him to leave. Please go away, Jesus. Even his hometown, 
Uh, we'll dip into this next week, but uh, Mark chapter 6, next chapter, his hometown rejects him. In 6.3, they say, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? They took offence at him. Not everyone sees who Jesus is, but some do. The disciples, even in that question, who is this? They're, they're starting towards the answer. They say, even the wind and the waves obey him. Who commands the seas? Who commands the waves? According to the Bible, God does. Uh, Psalm 65, Psalm 89, God is the one who controls the seas. Which I think is why this incident is so terrifying to the disciples. As they start to realise that God is standing in the boat with them. Now we know this of Jesus, we know, we, we can see who he is because we're told. Uh, with his man who'd been demon-possessed, Jesus tells him, 5 verse 19, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Mark adds, verse 20, so the man went out and began to tell him, the capitalist, how much Jesus had done for him. Mark's making the connection for us. Jesus is the Lord, God. So then how do we respond to Jesus, as we, as we meet him in the, the pages of Mark's gospel, how do we respond to him? Mark gives us kind of two responses that we see throughout this chapter. They're the responses of fear or faith. Uh, many who met Jesus and uh, saw something of his power, his authority, they, they, their response was, was fear. Uh, the disciples in the boat, they're, they're terrified. I mean, initially they're terrified of the storm, but after the storm's gone, they're still terrified. They're terrified of Jesus and the power that he holds. The neighbours, again, the, the neighbours of the demon-possessed man, when they came to Jesus, saw this man who was, had been so out of control, sitting, dressed in his right mind before Jesus. They're confronted by the power of Jesus. They fear him. They're afraid. Please go away, Jesus. Can I trust you, Jesus? I think it's safer if I don't. Please leave. And likewise, this woman in 5 verse 33, knowing she'd been healed, it says, verse 33, she came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. She's fearful of Jesus. What's Jesus going to do? This man has, has power. Will he be angry that I wanted to be healed and I snuck up and touched him? What's your response to Jesus? Are you afraid? Are you wary? Uh, I'm not sure about him. I think it's better if I just keep him at arm's length. I think the clearest response to, uh, to Jesus is with Jairus. You, you see this, this twofold, fear or faith with Jairus. If you look there at verse 35. It says, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. Jairus had just received the news that his daughter is dead. And Jesus said, don't be afraid, just believe. Have, have faith. It's the same word. Don't fear. Have faith. That's the right response. In the face of disaster, disease, the devil, even death, Jesus says, don't fear, have faith. 
What is faith? Well, I think faith is, um, is often misunderstood. Uh, often it's sort of thought of as a, as a blind leap in the dark. You know, it's, when, you, when you can't know something, well, that's when faith comes in. So this way of thinking goes. You know, you just, you just leap into the dark and have faith. Faith is seen in this way of thinking as the opposite of reason. You know, there's like, well, this is the reasonable thing to do, but I'm going to do that. I'm going to have faith and do the opposite. That's not what faith is. Uh, faith is simply trust, reliance, dependence. That's, that's what the word means. It just means to trust, to rely, to depend. Uh, it's actually not a, an especially religious word. It just means trust. And, and we, we trust in all sorts of things. At the moment, you are trusting your chairs to hold you up. You are exercising your faith in sitting on those chairs. Uh, when you decided to sit down on the chair, was it, a, was it blind faith that, that led you to sit on the chair? No, it was a, a reasoned faith. You thought, well, these chairs have held me up every other time, so I'm going to sit down trusting, having faith, that this chair will hold me up again. Trust is, uh, faith is just trust, relying, depending. And furthermore, faith always has an object. You have faith in something. I mean, in the case of uh, sitting, your faith is in your chair. It's important you exercise your faith and actually sit on the chair, but you need to have the object of your faith. You need to have the chair, if you, and it's the chair that actually holds you up. If you're not sure about that, try sitting on your faith without the chair. It probably won't go so well. So faith always has an object. We trust something, we, we trust someone, and it's the same with Jesus. Jesus is the, the object of our trust, the object of our faith. And so the question of whether or not faith is rational or reasonable, well, it depends on the object of the faith. Just like, it, you know, is the chair trustworthy? We'd say, is, is it rational, is it reasonable to trust Jesus? If it's reasonable to trust him, well, then it's not a leap in the dark. It's not irrational faith, it's a reasoned faith. The last thing to say about faith is everyone has faith. Everyone has faith one way or another. Uh, either you have faith, you have trust that Jesus is the Son of God, or you have faith, you have trust that Jesus is not the Son of God. Either position involves faith, involves trust. It, it might be a rational, reasonable faith or trust. It might be based on good evidence. It might be an irrational, irre uh, unreasonable faith without any thought to whether or not it's a reasoned position. But everyone has faith. Everyone trusts something. So what about you and me? What or who do you trust? Do you trust that Jesus is the Son of God? Because if we do, then he can save you. Like this woman who suffered so much in this broken world, Jesus said to her, verse 34, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. The word healed there, is, it's, it's the same word for saved. Your faith has saved you. Uh, it's the same word used back in verse 23 when Jairus says, come to Jesus, come so that she will be saved and live. In verse 28, when the woman says, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be saved. Your faith has saved you. That is, Jesus is the one who brings salvation to this woman, freed from her suffering, but bigger than that, he brings eternal salvation to all who trust him. Not long after 
Not long after uh, this occurred, Jesus hung on the cross, dying. And the religious leaders called out, mocking him. They said he saved others, but he can't save himself. The irony of those words, as in the very act of not saving himself, of giving up his life, of yielding himself to death, in that very act he did save others. He saved us if we trust in him. Saved us from the condemnation that we deserved as he took that punishment and brought us forgiveness. Brought us relationship with God. He saved us. Jesus stepped into this world of decay, of disaster, of demons, of death, of devastation, and he dealt with it. And so the message now, well, firstly, the horrors remain. Jesus didn't take away all the horrors of this world immediately. Uh, In Mark 5, we read of him calming one storm and freeing one demon-possessed man and healing one woman and raising one dead girl to life. He didn't immediately reverse the whole nature of this world. The horrors of this world remain. But he does give us grounds for hope, for real, profound, certain hope. Because he's stepped into this world and he's opened the door and shown us something of the new world that he brings. And most of all, by his death and resurrection, that one great act of reversal, the kingdom of God has begun. And it will one day reverse the decay of this world. Which means we can live now with hope. As we face this world, we we have our faith in Jesus. We suffer in this world, but the suffering doesn't need to... It needn't undermine our faith because the all-powerful, all-good Jesus has dealt with evil. And he's opened the way into his kingdom. Which means that one day when he returns, he'll usher in the new heavens and the new earth. A place where in the words of Revelation 21, as Ben read earlier, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Until that day, Jesus says to us, living in this broken world, living under the shadow of death, he says, as he said to Jairus, don't fear, just believe, have faith in me. So I need to ask, is your faith in Jesus? If it's not, then be warned that one day Jesus will be someone to fear when he comes in judgment against those who continue to oppose him. But if it is, as he said to that woman, he says to you and to me, go in peace, your faith has saved you. Yes, we live in this decaying world, but we live knowing that we're forgiven, knowing that God is with us by his spirit, that death is not the ultimate enemy that stands over us, Because Jesus has defeated death. And so we need no longer fear, but rather believe. Let's pray. Our Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that Jesus has entered into this broken world of rebellion and decay. That he's walked amongst it, that he's confronted it and overcome it. And we thank you that Jesus is all-powerful and all good, that he is worthy of our trust. Father, please strengthen us in the the face of sin and suffering to put our trust in Jesus, 
and to know the sure and certain hope and salvation that is ours in him. And we ask this in his name. Amen.